Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Try to be careful and not return too often to the same thing, but uh, I know it's been several months since I actually preached the message out of Psalm 103. And I want to look at it tonight. Uh, So you can open your Bibles to that. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. And I'm not going to teach through it verse by verse. There's two sections we'll go back and look at while we look at mercy and grace. This actually says, uh, the heading in my Bible says, Praise for the Lord's mercies. And the psalm goes like this, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm, there's a lot of mercy in this psalm. A lot of emphasis on the mercy of the Lord in this psalm. But there is also grace in this psalm. And it would do us well to spend a couple minutes talking about the difference. We had at Rama an eight-week course called Understanding Grace, taught by Tony Cook. And we talked about saving grace, and we talked about standing grace and serving grace and what grace is and what grace isn't, the difference between grace and mercy. And so it's a, it is a big, big subject, the grace of God. But a simple way, I don't want to be simplistic about this because I, I'm, I'm acknowledging up front there's more to it than this, But a simple way of uh, distinguishing between what's mercy and what's grace is simply this. Grace is you getting the good things that you do not deserve. And mercy is you not getting the bad things that you do deserve. Right? 
so if we look here, you know, again, this a praise for the Lord's mercies. This is praise for the Lord's mercies and praise for the Lord's grace. But I want to start with mercy. So I skipped down again. Let's read from verse 8 again. And we will read, uh, we'll just start there and say this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And here's, here's the crucial part, I think, when we're talking about his mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And, uh, and you've heard me speak. I'm not going to preach this part again, but it may be some of you remember how this next verse when it says, as a father pities his children, or as a father has compassion on his children. That's how the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And how that really sunk in uh, uh, when, when, uh, when we had kids. When we finally had children and I could, I could observe them. And I could see how even at a, at a, at a young age, you know, the, the sin nature would rear its ugly head and manifest itself in ways uh, that made absolutely no difference in how I loved them. It didn't change that. And to think that that's how God views us. We're his kids and we're always going to be his kids. Uh, can he have anger toward us? Yeah, but it's not going to last. His anger is temporary. Thank God it's temporary. And then it goes on to compare uh, the, uh, it says he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows what we're made of. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what we're going to do. And that means he knows we're going to fail from time to time, right? Uh, and it says, as, a man, as for a man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, it is gone, its place remembers it no more. And we see other passages in the Bible that talk about that, how uh, the length of a man's life, you know, what, what is your life, says James, but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. And uh, this, is, this is a verse that makes more sense the older you get, right? Try to tell a young person their life is short, and they're like, mm, yeah, you know, okay, maybe. Uh, they don't really get that. Life is long. Until uh, you hit about 30, then you start realizing, whoa, things have sped up here. Uh, then you hit 50, and you're like, wait a second, you know. Then you hit 60, and you think, you know, even scripturally, I, this thing is halfway over with. Even if I max out according to the promise of God at 120 years. First half went quickly. And you're thinking, and the last half of the first half went a lot quicker than the first half of the first half. What's the second half of my life going to look like? Uh, it zips by. But... The contrast, the reason that's in there, he's contrasting that. But, the next verse, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. What's this saying? That the mercy of the Lord lasts a lot longer than your life does. Is he going to run out of mercy for you in your lifetime? No, he's not. Your life, a man's life is like grass. It grows, it withers, it dies, and nobody even remembers where it was, a particular blade of grass, a particular flower. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And that's great. Isn't that super important? And it's new mercy every morning, right? But now here's the catch. You think it's all good. And what's the next thing it says? On, uh, to such, sorry, on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his, command, uh, his covenant 
and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Ah, well, here's the thing. How perfectly do we have to keep that covenant? How perfectly do we have to keep his commandments? Is it possible for us to perfectly keep his covenant and his commandments? It's not, is it? So, is this just a matter of degrees? He'll have mercy on you to the degree that you keep his commandments. And when you fail, and you don't fear him enough, the mercy level goes down. That's the way it kind of appears sometimes. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I think this kind of this goes right in line with everything we see in the Old Testament. And we see when Paul's explaining this, that the whole purpose of the law was to what? To convict us of sin. To make us recognize that we really have never qualified for the things that God wants us to have. It really was much more about mercy in the Old Testament because Israel never hit that point where they were qualified. They went through seasons where they kept covenant a little bit better depending on whether they had a good king who was leading them or not, right? But I think this, there's somebody who did keep covenant perfectly. Remember who that was? Jesus. And let me ask you this, for that matter, if we kept his covenant perfectly, if we remembered and kept his commandments perfectly, would we need his mercy? What's the mercy for? Well, mercy is we don't get the bad things we do deserve. But if we keep his covenant perfectly, we don't deserve bad things. So we don't need the mercy. We just get the grace. All right? So here's what we see. We see that, uh, of course, we don't. We don't keep his laws. We don't keep any of that perfectly. Jesus did, though. He kept it perfectly. He did it right. Jesus, in perfect covenant-keeping posture with the Father. It is Jesus who is in covenant with the Father. You understand that? The covenant, the New Testament equivalent of the Abrahamic covenant. And you remember that. The covenant that God cut with Abraham, he really didn't cut it with Abraham. He put Abraham to sleep. And did this covenant-cutting ceremony with himself. Do you remember that? It caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And he had a, a, a dream or a vision. He saw uh, like a smoking oven moving between the cut pieces of the animal. God wasn't going to let Abraham mess this thing up. God was swearing by himself. It wasn't really a matter of you do this part and I'll do this part. God was doing it all. Same way with Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of that. The covenant was fulfilled between God the Father and God the Son. What does it have to do with us? We are in Christ. Jesus is perfectly in, again, in this perfect covenant-keeping posture with the Father. And I and you are in Him. It is a humbling thing to recognize that the only thing I have going for me when I go to the Father in prayer is that I am in Christ. He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. And this affects my attitude and my posture when I go before the Father. Because if I go before the Father 
with, and I'm full of sin consciousness and my failures, my sin, my uh, inability to keep the covenant, I'm not going to be praying in faith. I'm going to be begging God. It's going to be, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. I know I don't deserve it, but please, please, please have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. When the fact is, he had mercy on me when he judged my sin in Christ. He took all the things that stood between me and being in right standing with him and put all that on Jesus and judged it at the cross. Okay? It changes my identity. You know this. We have to always stir ourselves up about this by way of reminder. We've got to constantly remind ourselves of this because the devil will beat us up with it and it really affects our faith walk. God, of course, holds nothing against Jesus. And since all of our sins were laid on him and all of our sins were judged there, he holds nothing against us if we are in him. That's how they are removed from us. God is able to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west because that's how he dealt with them in Christ. So... Because there is no sin in Christ, we are entitled to all the benefits or all of the grace that is in verses 1 through 5. We back up there when it says, Oh, bless the Lord my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord on my soul and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, the sins that we commit even after making a confession of faith unto salvation. He forgives those. who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's not mercy. That's grace. That's benefits. That's things that he gives us, pours into our life so that we can enjoy life, so that we can have the life that he wants us to have. So, If that's all about grace, God simply giving us the good things that we don't deserve, that we cannot earn, then why is there so much lack in the body of Christ? Why is there so much sickness in the body of Christ? Why is there so much of the the opposite of what we see? Are we really... Uh, walking in such a way that you could say that God has crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He's satisfied with my mouth with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. Are we walking and living in that kind of abundance? And if we aren't, why aren't we? Well, and I can't answer that question for everybody. I just can't. And I don't want to turn this into one of those things. Well, if you're not walking in 100% abundance and provision and healing and satisfaction and everything else, then you're just not in faith. But... I want you to consider this. Is there anything that we can do? And this is kind of, Pastor Mike was kind of talking about this. I know he was, he was in the spirit. He was tracking. He started to say something. I'm like, oh, don't go too far with that. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get into my sermon. Uh, is there a part for us to play in this? Well, there is. But you have to understand the part we play does nothing to add to the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ is finished. But let's start at the cross. For whom did Christ die? For, for whose sins did Christ die? Yours, right? And mine? But who else? The whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, 
believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I think that means exactly what it means. You know me. I'm, you know I'm not a Calvinist. God did not ordain people from the foundation of the earth to go to hell just because in the counsel of his will he thought that was best. Salvation has been purchased for everybody. Yet not everybody will be saved, right? Why? Because God didn't save them? No, because they don't appropriate that salvation. We know this. How did you get saved? Well, you made Jesus, you, you confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. You believed in your heart God raised him from the dead, right? You made a confession of faith unto salvation. Did you save yourself when you did that? No. All you did was appropriate by faith what Jesus Christ purchased you, what God purchased through the gift of his son of the cross. So same thing with these other things. Faith is the thing that God has given us to appropriate the blessings he has already purchased for us. They are already done. They are already ours, but they must be appropriated. They must be brought manifestly into our lives, and we do that with faith. And this is where uh, Tony Cook drew this great illustration. I don't remember if he did the first part of it, but, but something that, that I don't know if something I came up with, God gave me, or if I heard somewhere, the first part of this is this, that pi- some people picture faith as, uh, you know, God's got his arm full of these blessings, but he's holding on to them tightly. And faith is the crowbar that we use to pry God's grip loose from things like healing, uh, financial release, all these good things. And we've got to wrestle in the spirit world. And we've got to, by faith, again, pry these out of God's grip. Press in because God's resisting you. He's not, is he? And Tony Cook drew this picture. He said, picture grace as hundreds and millions of tons of water suspended, held by this tarp that is filled to bursting, but it hasn't burst. Faith is a pitchfork or something that you reach up and you just tap into that and poke a hole in that tarp so that it all comes gushing down. That's how abundant God's grace is. And faith is simply that which we use to release that abundance into our lives. So that's what it is in terms of a picture. Faith is what we use to release God's grace and his power, his deliverance, his provision, his healing into our lives. What is it really, though? What is that pitchfork or that stick or that pokey thing that we use to bring those blessings into our lives? Scripturally, I can only come up with one thing that it really is, and it's the words of your mouth. It's the words of your mouth. It's not just what you believe. It is what you say. Now, it's what you do, too. We've talked about this before, how I've said the highest expression of faith is obedience. Okay? But Jesus himself said, you say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. If you don't doubt in your heart, you'll have whatever you say. Then he goes on to talk about praying didn't you and I just have a discussion about that? How, how Jesus said, let's just read this real quick. And now I'm getting off my notes, but we got a, we got a few extra minutes. In uh, What verse is that? Anybody remember? Yes, Mark eleven twenty three. 
22, he says, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed to be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, what things, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Well, he just talked about speaking to this mountain. Where's the prayer there? Is that a prayer? And I kind of think it is. You know, when James said uh, toward the end of his letter uh, that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, two and a half years, three and a half years. But you go back and look at it, I, there's no prayer there. Does, now, it doesn't mean he didn't pray, but the only record we have of him saying anything is him declaring to the king, there will be neither rain nor dew. He just declared it. And we see in Joshua... You remember uh, there's this interesting episode shortly after they move into the land of promise where the Gibeonites disguise themselves. They can see that the Israelites are blessed. They can see that God is fighting for them. And they know that they're somewhere down the line, the Israelites are going to come and do the same thing to them that they did to Jericho. And so they disguise themselves and they say, oh, we come from a far way. Uh, please help us. Uh, enter co- We're not from around here. This isn't our land. So enter into a covenant with us. We'll be for you. You be for us. And they make this rash agreement to help these people. Then it turns out that they're their neighbors and that God was going to have them destroy them. But they made a covenant. And then the next thing you know, the Gibeonites are being attacked and they turn to Israel, who they just fooled into having a covenant with them. So you got to help us. So Joshua said, yeah, we do. So fighting for the Gibeonites who really should have been their enemies, Joshua goes out there and he's fighting with a passion and he's busy killing the enemies of the Gibeonites and the sun's going down. It's like, I don't have enough time to kill all the people I want to kill. So you know what it says? It says he prayed and said in the presence of all of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon. Was that his prayer? I kind of think it was. Because the next thing you know, it says there was never a day like that before or after where God heeded the voice of man. This was his prayer. And I think that's it. When we talk about, you know, this isn't just a faith church. It is a word of faith church. My, my article is about this, by the way, this, this, uh, this month. And uh, you've heard me say it a dozen times. I'll keep saying it. It's not name it and claim it. It's God names it, we claim it. But the claiming it part is important. We can have anything, everything that God has promised us. Now, what's interesting is these guys like uh, uh, Joshua. Now, again, I'm I'm allowing for this possibility. When it says that Joshua prayed, he could have prayed privately. And then God gave him the command. You just speak to the sun. I'm going to stop the sun for you. But you say it in the presence of the people. So maybe he got his orders that way. But the fact is, he was doing battle to maintain the integrity of himself and God's people. And the thing that he spoke to the son was from that. It wasn't a selfish thing. It was so that he could be the leader God called him to be, so that his people could be the people God called them to be. It it wasn't just to, hey, look what I can do. Same thing with Elijah. We can do the things, whatever immediate need, whatever thing is standing in the way of our healing, whatever standing in the way of our provision, we can speak to that thing. And because God has promised provision, promised healing, that speaking is a prayer 
because it is in line with what God has commanded us and what God has promised us. Faith-filled words are a form of prayer, I guess is what I'm saying. But they're not faith. Where does faith begin? Where the will of God is known. Where the will of God is known, we can be in faith, should be in faith. But the biblical expression of faith is our words. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. Right? Again, we speak to the mountain. We don't speak to God about the mountain. Not according to Jesus. There's an awful lot of prayer still going up. Please, dear God, please, please, please. And I don't, I'm not saying that God is without compassion. But he gave us faith and he gave us promises for a reason. And we are the ones who are supposed to be working these things. We need to speak to our own lives. Speak to our own heart. You know? You ever find yourself thinking? And maybe you don't. You know, sometimes I find myself singing the words to a song uh, that I'm like, wow, those are great words. I'm not sure my heart is there, though. And, and just, yeah, just for example, I'm not saying this is where I was tonight, but Jesus, be the center of my life. Am I really wanting that? I mean, I know it should be, okay? And I know I'd be better off. You'd be better off. The world would be better off if Jesus were at the center of my life, if he were at the center of your your life. Am I willing to accept what that means in every deep way? Because it ultimately means I can't be the center of it. It comes down to an issue of lordship. And I think sometimes we need to pray something like this. Lord, help me to want the things that you want for me. I'm just yielding my desire to you. Like, man, I I know I should do this, but I don't want to do this. Can you help me want it? Or maybe, I know I shouldn't do this, but I still want to do it. Can you help me not want it? Give these things to him. He's the only one that can change you. Now, we can discipline ourselves and make make ourselves do the things we don't want to do. We can, for a time, make ourselves not do the things. Uh, that, that, we, uh, that we shouldn't do, that we want to do. But God really can change us, and we might as well be honest with our prayers. But let's also speak to those things. Let's declare, I have a desire for the Word of God. I have a desire for His Lordship. My desires are changing day by day to be more in line with the things that He's spoken over me. I am hungry for His Word, even if you don't feel hungry for His Word. Speak, declare it over yourself. Why? Because you know God wants that for you, right? And this is kind of, I think, I remember exactly what I wrote. I think I wind up in my article talking about the the words we speak of faith. You know, we are generally uh, a little more adept at speaking over ourselves, for instance, when it comes to healing. I have encouraged you many, many times, and I encourage you again, speak healing over yourself daily, whether you feel an immediate need for healing or not. But certainly, speak healing over yourself when you're fighting something. All right? I will not receive this sickness. This sickness cannot stay in my body because Jesus bore my sickness in the form of those stripes. He carried them to the cross and left them nailed there to my sins. Sickness has no right to dwell in my body. Thank you, Lord. And we can get good at that. uh, But we generally get good at that first because those things are near and dear to us. Let's speak those words of faith over the other areas of our life, too. Like our desires, like our habits, like our, our, our predispositions. Lord, my desires are changing daily. 
I am becoming more and more like you. I am desiring more and more every day to be and to want and to do everything you want me to be, want, and do. My, my, my words are com- coming more and more under control of the Holy Spirit because I yield control of my tongue to the Holy Spirit. And then spend some time praying in tongues and let the Holy Spirit actively control your tongue because there's life and death in the power of the tongue, right? We're training our tongues that way. There's so much power there, and there's so much grace there, so many promises. And there's no limit to that. We know that. And this is a, just a, it's one of the, you know, God is infinite. There's no, it's not like, well, all these billions of people praying, maybe he just doesn't have that much grace left. His mercies are new every morning, same, and it's the same source. Mercies come from the same source as the grace. There's new grace every morning. There's an infinite supply. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Uh, but don't be lazy about it. Access that grace. You absolutely need it. No matter what you are or aren't struggling with in your life, you absolutely need the grace of God if you are going to do everything God is calling you to do. If everything that you're doing, you can do without the grace of God, you are not doing everything God wants you to do. It takes the grace of God to obey God and to fulfill God's purpose in your life. You can go ahead and stand up with me. Praise and worship team, you can come on up. I alluded to this, but let me make it the central point of my closing statement. There is nothing any of us need more, any man or woman needs more than salvation, right? It is our most essential need. And how do we appropriate salvation? If you will. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Even salvation itself is spoken into our lives by us. That's the power of the tongue. Does that confession save us? Jesus saves us. Jesus saved us with his work on the cross. Everything God's going to do to save you is done. But the tongue is so powerful that with that simple confession, we appropriate the saving grace of God, the mercy of God for our personal salvation with a simple confession. And I want to invite you to do that now if you never have. If you've never personally made that confession, made Jesus Christ your Lord, I want to give you that opportunity now. Maybe. You made that confession. Maybe you made it as a child. Maybe you made it long ago. Your mom or your dad led you in that prayer and uh, scared you with the fires of hell. Maybe you didn't know what you were getting into. Uh, you've, you've, most of you, I'll need to share the whole testimony again sometime. It's been a while, but that, that was essentially my story. I'd heard, you know, I'd heard for years the word, and something never sunk in. And I was desperately interested in salvation. I was, I don't know, I, I, I've never bothered to find out how common it was for a young kid, I'm talking eight, nine years old, to sometimes think obsessively about heaven and hell. And when my mom finally made it clear to me that this prayer, if I prayed this prayer, I could know that heaven was mine. I literally couldn't pray it fast enough. There was no way I was going to wait till another church service rolled around. 
Because as mom herself said, what if lightning strikes you in your sleep tonight? Now, did I know what I was getting into just, short of, just shy of my 12th birthday? I absolutely didn't. But I do believe God saved me that night. There have been opportunities since then where it's just kind of like when Jesus pulls his disciples aside. Are you still with me? Let's count the cost. Are you still going to follow me? Maybe you're having a moment like that now. Yes, God, I think the prayer I prayed was real, but I haven't counted the cost in a while. And I'm looking at my life over the last week, the last month, the last year, the last five years. It's not what I would call the life of a disciple, and I want to make that commitment. You can do that anytime, anywhere. But you're in church right now. It would be my privilege to pray with you. I want to reconnect, recommit. If you want to get saved, if you want to just solidify that confession, now's the time. I'm going to pray a, a simple prayer, and we're going to sing a song. And as soon as we start singing... You want to give your life to Christ or you want to recommit? Come up here and let me pray. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.